Hello and welcome to Unsafe Space. Today is one of our live book clubs. Uh, this month we've been reading fiction and we've been reading one of my favorite books, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. I'm very excited to talk about this one today and especially to hear from some of our community who maybe have read it for the first time, given that this has become a very popular book in the past year and a half. You would think, I think it's actually more of just a, the TV show based on the book has become popular. Anyway, welcome everybody. Who do we have? We've got Carter, we've got Keith, we've got Thomas St. Thomas and Alex, and we've got, is that Amy? Hello, Amy. And we've got, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm blanking. I think Sagita's here and Sagita. yeah, and Matt, right? And maybe Cheeky. I, I don't, there she is. Yeah. Cheeky Mare. There's Cheeky Hi, Mare. guys. Carrie, I forgot about that uh, book club intro. Have you guys been playing it? I, I was out the last book club. I think. Yeah, we've been uh, using I, it. Beverly queued it up. There, there's one we have that has the lo a lost clip, lost too. One, I should yeah. find that one. I, I yeah, like both right. of them. <laughs> so, and Cheeky Mare dropped off. So Cheeky Mare. Okay. So just a reminder, if it's your, well, if it's your first time in book club and you're in the live discussion, we just ask when you're not speaking to please mute your microphone so we don't pick up any background noise. And an announcement just at the top for anyone who wants to join us next month, you can be on camera in the chat or you can be in the, the chat uh, over on, on YouTube and, uh, or Odyssey also. Does Odyssey have a live chat? Uh, I think, yes, it does. I think yes. it does. Um, next month, we are doing Thomas Sowell's Black Rednecks and White Liberals. So you can get started on that one now if you would like to join us. You can find out more info at unsafespace.com on the book club, book club page. That's it. That's my announcement. What would you think of the book, Carter? Um, I uh, Okay, I'll start with this. I think this woman has a mastery of the English language that is something I haven't seen in almost any other literature. She is, her command of the English language is amazing. Um, and that, I, I really enjoy how uh, she can turn a phrase and her 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 use of vocabulary and nuance and just the, her, her, the poetry of it is, poetry, is very right? impressive. Um, yes, I yes. think so. So, uh, so I, I would say that was the, the positive thing that struck me the most about the book was that I was just like, wow, this it's kind of like reading poetry at times. Um, so I kudos to Margaret Atwood for that. That was really that was really cool. Um, I personally, I also felt like, oh, I can see why it's a chick flick. Like I, it's, I can see why this is a chick book. Like I certainly found it a little bit melodramatic at times and was like, eh, like. Okay, I get it. There's lots of metaphor and your heart feels a certain way and we get how you feel and thank you for emoting all over the page. Um, but it was done beautifully, so I could appreciate it. Um, I, I, I expected it to be about Islam, but it wasn't. It was, Christ, it was about Christianity. It was just uh, not mainstream Christianity. Um, and I have no reference about the, the book or about the TV show, so I don't know how different it was or not because I don't, I don't know anything about the television show. I will say I, I came away thinking to myself, yes, this is the boogeyman. This, this is the boogeyman that the feminists from the 80s were concerned of wrongly. 
And uh, <laughs> I guess this is the dystopia they were concerned about, right? And they were wrong about that being the dystopia. Um, so, but it was still a good book. Just a note on that about Islam. So she has said in interviews that she looked at Islam, radical Islam, as an example. And she tried oh, to okay. imagine what a religious fundamentalism uh, taking root in the government might look like in the West. And this was her prediction. And I think she didn't oh, okay. see it was going to come from the left <laughs> instead of the right. Yeah, well, I yeah, yeah I, I got the impression that like she because she also I looked after this. I expected it to be about Islam. So I look afterwards. I looked up some stuff she said and she was like, well, it's more about power than religion. That's the point. This was more about them using religion for power purposes. Um, but again, I, 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 I can't help coming away going, yeah, I, I, feminists, I know that that's always been your boogeyman. You were like, yeah, the patriarchy was a problem, but it was never as big of a problem as you said it was. And it was always, it was waning by the time you were whining about it in the eighties. And this was not the battle to be fighting, right? Like stop being dramatic about how men are horrible and you need to fight the patriarchy like that it went the other way that's not who we're fighting right like we we have a lack of masculinity the patriarchy was was destroyed they like more than destroyed we are it's totally it was totally the wrong enemy um and i wonder what she i wonder what a book like hers would have been like in the 80s if she had had a different perspective on what the enemy will be um, and what that would look like, because I imagine that that would have been uh, chilling. But this was kind of like, I don't know. I, I felt like it was like reading a feminist nightmare that like I couldn't relate to because I'm like, there's this isn't even a risk. <laughs> so, but it was good. It was good. Yeah. And like I said, one of the best writers, like yeah. phenomenal writer. Phenomenal I writer. She's one of my favorite writers. She's done a lot of books of poetry as well. And I was really fortunate at college. I got to take a whole course on her where it was my homework to get to read her. It, I just, I think you're right. I think she's a poet in the way that she uses language and kind of the way she writes and jumps in through different period, different time periods, but strings it all together and uses metaphor and will use references. Like for example, there's one part in the book where she's talking about the chicken and that she brings home a chicken and how number one is like reaching their fingers inside and poking and pulling out the, the stuff inside of the chicken. And later she's on a, a table much later, but it, she's being prodded like that chicken. And she doesn't even have to, she's so subtle with the language. She doesn't have to say like the chicken that Cora was, you know, you just, your mind flashes back to that because of how good she is with it. But anyway, what other people, I know there are mixed opinions in this group, which I think is, Fantastic. Anybody else have a first impression? I can give mine. Um, like both of you said, um, it made me feel like an idiot anytime I wrote anything after reading what she wrote, because everything she wrote was just so clean. Um, I think as James Baldwin says, every sentence you write should be as clean as a bone. And that's how I felt reading what she wrote. There is never any word like confusing um, face with faith with confidence. Nothing, <laughs> nothing ever came out that was. <laughs> I'm never going to live this argument down, Thomas. <laughs> <No>. Am I? <laughs> there's, there's never anything that I read where I was like, well, what exactly does she mean? 
um, even when she's using all of these analogies, et cetera, it was perfectly clear. There's no confusion. You know exactly what she's saying. Um, and it was so easy to read. I, I didn't imagine that I would have as much fun reading this as I did. Um, but one of the things that I differ on with um, your interpretation, Carter, well, maybe not interpretation, but um, when I was reading it, I, I, I wasn't concerned about this is the way that they think the um, patriarchy should be fought because this is the danger of what might happen. What I kept seeing was parallels between every single other dystopia. Um, this was just her version of the problems that are inherent to human nature. So, um, and it also reminded me of 1984 in the sense that um, I remember early on during the Trump administration when people said, oh, when he said something about fake news and everyone started going, oh, no, see, it's 1984. This is what's going on. Um, you guys should read that book because 1984. Oh, my God. And I kept thinking um, 1984 isn't what you think it is. Then as I'm reading this book and I know the popular memes about what people seem to think this book is about, I was like, this is nothing like what you think it's about. And you keep using this book against people uh, or against ideas, but it's your idea that this book is speaking to me against. Um, so they've got almost all the same things to where it's not necessarily men as a whole oppressing women. It's like every single other dystopia where it's one small powerful group of people who are oppressing every single, um, every other person. Um, so they have the classes, just like in 1984, where you have the inner party, the uh, the uh, yeah, the party, the inner party, the outer party, whatever it was, and the proletariat. Same thing with uh, Handmaid's Tale. You have the commanders and their wives, and then you have everybody else who is clamoring just to have a relationship, much less have um, sex or progeny. Um, and they have all their different outfits based on their class. Um, every single dystopia that I keep seeing is always about concentration of power. They use different things like this one used um, the falling amount of fertility to then say, oh, well, for your own good and for the survival of humanity, this is what we need to do. Oh, well, there's a pandemic, so we have to ratchet up all this stuff. Oh, you know what? There's wars with all those other people. And that's another thing. It was the same thing with the wars in 1984 where they were constantly fighting other people. So they were all focused on an outer threat which I think is something that brings humans together all the time. Handmaid's Tale, same thing. They call them the angels at the front line. Um, and they probably needed to have some kind of people at the front line, just like they did in 1984, because not only are they fighting these wars, but if you have all these men who aren't even allowed to have sex, much less have children, you gotta you have all this pent up testosterone and aggression. So you gotta focus this somewhere. Um, so, I, you know, I, I didn't really get too much of the whole feminists are kind of saying this kind of thing. To me, it was um, just another dystopia, but a different version of uh, dystopia. I love that. Yeah, I think I think let somebody else speak about their opinions, and then I want to get into some of those parallels with other dystopias. I think I would agree with um, Thomas there, and not at all with you, Carter. Um, I didn't feel like it was a feminist um, track at all. Um, I didn't feel as a wow. um, man I was being hammered 
by it. Um, yes, it was utterly beautiful writing, um, but just like um, Thomas, you were saying, it was any dystopia anywhere. That was the issue. That was uh, what you were staring down the barrel of. You could have swapped out any of the parts, um, you know, any of the religious ideologies or whatever, if it was just about one per one set of people controlling the um, fertility and reproductive um, functions of women, it would have been um, essentially the same story. And there were, uh, to my mind, loads of nuggets where... Um, the men were kind of given a, not a free pass, but they they weren't demonised. The the only uh, males demonised were specific uh, males for their specific behaviours. It it wasn't like all men are evil, uh, and even um, Offred, um, she, in talking with uh, Moira, she um, she was challenging her on her more extreme um, feminist views and. Um, you know, not not agreeing with her, even in the position where she's been used as a brood mare, essentially. Um, yeah, so that's my first take. Anyway. I just want to clarify something because you're just making me realize it. I did not come away with man hating from the book. That wasn't the ninety the eighties feminism that I felt about it. It was uh, women victimhood. It was it was very much like very much like women are victims of everything all the time. There were a few like, you know, Aunt Lydia, maybe she was not viewed as a victim as often as other characters. But um, that that's what I mean when I, and maybe it's my lived experience uh, <laughs> in high school in the 80s, right? But like there was a, you know, in high school in the 80s, there was a huge feminist contingent of, girls my age running around being victims of everything and and writing poetry about how victimized they were by literally everything and there was an element of that to this for me although i do agree with both of you that uh it could have been like you could have replaced it with other stuff and and still had a dystopia but it could have been some other dynamic so i think those dystopian elements were there i i agree with that it's just that particular thing I kind of wish that she hadn't used that particular boogeyman. That's all. So I'll do one for Camp Carter because I, I saw it that way exactly what you said. I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate it the way you did. Um, but if she was trying to be prescient about, you know, the big boogeyman, I think like technocracy would have been maybe a better choice, you know, in the 80s, 90s and on, you know, we have all this technology and you know the all the women working in, in in camps those who were infertile doing manual labor it's just kind of didn't add up to for me with the the all the new technologies coming along and i, I thought like technocracy would have been a better choice but then again it's her choice she's the author and i i love the book and the writing, absolutely. It was beautiful. Um, but, you know, if, if she's trying to be prescient, like the shrouded women, and I'm like, you could see parallels with other societies, but I, I didn't quite, it, that part was not convincing to me um, personally. I'll, I'll uh, go if you want. Who else? Uh, 
Um, my uh, context, I listened to the Audible version. I didn't read it, which was really done well. Um, the reader was excellent. Uh, I agree with what you're saying about the wording. Like, uh, I didn't really get that much into the story, but it was it was d- written so well. It reminded me of like reading Henry David Thoreau or something. She's really good. Like, yeah, you can tell exactly what's going on. So I I really liked that. I enjoyed that part. Um, I did it in four days on Audible, which I I don't usually get a, through a book that fast. So it had kind of a lot of impact. But the scenario itself to me is seems so far outside of what I think could really happen. That it didn't impact me the way like 1984 Fahrenheit 451 did as a dystopia. It's like I don't think this can really happen. Um, so I understood the concerns part, but it, it's almost like over the top. Not that Fahrenheit 451 isn't over the top too, but I didn't see it as uh, as impactful to me as that. I I like the. Uh, she had the war like George Orwell does, like, OK, there's a war, but it's not actually clear if if all that's bullshit, if it's really happening or not. Like, um, that's the same thing, like to get people to live in that kind of society. That's a common thread in this dystopia. You got to have a war ongoing all the time. That's what politicians do. That's how they get that kind of control. Um I liked how she had like people weren't allowed to read the Bible. Like she's not allowed to read a book and the Bible they keep locked up and they can't even uh, verify a quote. Like one of them I remember was um, she said, well, it says in the Bible from each woman, according to her ability to each man, according to his need, that's in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's interesting yeah. mix. <laughs> They're mixing. Yeah. They're mixing. That was a good marks. mix. <laughs> yeah. That one. Um, Another great quote, I've already used it like two or three times in arguing with people online. And I think Carter mentioned this one on the show, and it struck me when she says, um, I'm paraphrasing a little, but she says, there's a difference between ignorance and ignoring. Ignoring takes work. Like, that's a great one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I really, really yeah. enjoyed the, the writing. Um, could the future really look like that? I don't think religion, Christianity is you know, mixed with government is going this way. It's actually the opposite. Christianity is getting less and less influence in government for good or for better, you know, better or for worse. Um, I don't think this could happen. I don't think in the 80s, I would not have thought this could really happen. Uh, People won't let um, any place in America get this far. It's worse than the Puritans, you know, after the Mayflower, you know. I don't think it could really happen. So it didn't strike me the way some other dystopias, but, but I did enjoy it. I'm glad I read it. And I never saw the TV show. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know what the subject was. So I, I went through it completely open other than hearing a few snippets. So everything I have heard in the past about it was completely and totally wrong. It had nothing to do with the book. Yeah. I was comparing it to you, you know, you, you mentioned 1984 and, Fahrenheit 451, I was comparing it in my mind to Brave New World in 1984, because those are the two dystopian novels that we've read recently. And and I think that's, I think you're kind of hitting on the key for me. It was the tools that she viewed the authoritarians using to get power weren't the right tools. Like, I read 1984 and I go, yes, a surveillance state, absolutely. Uh, like, Newspeak, absolutely. That's where, like, surveillance state, Newspeak, got all that. Totally see that happening. I, re- I see... Brave New World, and I'm like, oh, uh, a drug that makes people kind of zone out. Oh, the normalization or pet, uh, 
trivialization of sexual activity. Like, oh yeah, like I, I can, I kind of see that. Oh, the indoctrination of children while they're sleeping. Yep, got all that. That's all there. And I look at this book and I'm like, eh, those aren't the tools that the people are going to use. Those tools aren't the tools that will resonate with the population. Uh, like that's not the direction that the culture was going where they would allow, like you're saying, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go that way. It wouldn't, you, they wouldn't allow it to go that way. It wouldn't be a useful tool, a patriarchy that's, that's prudish or kind of weird. But I do like that she had, I do like that she had the people at the top having some hypocrisy. And you see this in, in a lot of these dystopian books where like the ruling class doesn't follow their own rules. They've got like, and in this one, you know, they've got their hookers and, and whatever their, their parties are. Their Scrabble parties. Um, yeah, their Scrabble parties. I, I want to let everyone else give their first impressions, but I have to jump on that for a second. I have to, because actually I both, I agree with you. And I think I said this when I was, it's, her version, the feminist nightmare of how dystopia takes place. I think I agree with everyone who's talked so far anyway, in different ways. The, fe- her, the feminist idea of what a dystopia will look like in the, in the Western world is, did not come to pass. Do I think in the 80s that some feminists looked at the culture and the culture of, you know, the, the religious fundamentalists on the right had a lot of sway in the 80s and 90s. And I think they looked at things like Jerry Falwell and they looked at these figures and said, oh my gosh, it's going to be this nightmare where they take over the government and they want to force us to be handmaidens like in the Bible. And they thought this could come to pass. And maybe at that time in the 80s and 90s, this seemed like it was more of a realistic possibility of what dystopia might look like. But I think now it's so off the mark that fundamentalism didn't end up coming, at least the fundamentalism bleeding into the government and being used to gain power, political power, and to oppress people didn't come from the religious right. It came from the religious left. And, and I, you know, when that comes to the pandemic, COVID, the, the, when it comes to wokeism and, and, and so when they decided to make this into a TV show, it's almost as if they just thumb their nose. It's what we've talked about on the show a lot. They're living in this false reality, these two different movies playing on screen. And I think they read this book or, or most of them don't even read it. They just watch the interpretation of the show. But the people that made the show read this book and they really look out at the world and say, wow, we're so close to this now. Like, look at all the conservative Republican, you know, white supremacist, heteropatriarchy. And they really think we're close to this now. They, after, for anyone who hasn't watched it, the TV show in the first season ends with the bookends. So she gets in the car. You don't know what's going to happen if oh. she's being saved or not. Then they come back with like a season two and three. And I don't know, I think four now. I don't know. And I quit watching after season two because that at that point, you've just got the social justice writers. They're not even guided by this anymore. They're just writing it based on what the world they want us to believe exists. This writing patriarchy that we're currently living in and and they're hammering you over. It has none of the poetry of this book. It has uh, none of the insight. Like it just, they're just hammering, I, they're hammering us over the head with this is the world we're living in. Isn't it awful? You know, so. You know, you I, know, I, Carrie, it's, it's interesting because it's, you're reminding me that it's kind of like Marcuse's repressive tolerance essay in the sense that 
she's as a feminist she's writing in the 80s saying that oh she's worried about the the threat coming from the religious right and doing all the stuff and the threat that she's worried about people exploiting zealotry to maintain or to obtain power is a is correct in that sense but it came from actually the feminists like it grew out of that leftist feminism and just like marcusa has in repressive tolerance this this idea that like well the 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 cathedral, he doesn't use the term cathedral, obviously, but like he has this, this idea that the cathedral is controlled by the right, basically. And so um, the left is the ones that are being oppressed and they need to, but like actually the opposite, what was the true, uh, was the truth. And, and see, Margaret Atwood, one quick note, does everybody remember the part in the book where she's talking about her mom? She's remembering in the past going to a protest with her mom with all these feminists who are burning pornography, they're burning books. Okay, so Margaret Atwood isn't this, she's not easily, at least until recently, she hasn't been easily shoehorned into woke or not. And even in this book, she's recognizing, look, the censorship, the book burners, some of the book burners were people, on, were the feminists, were people on the left in this, in this, in this book. And they weren't all just like, it, th this culture didn't arrive. It wasn't just right fundamentalists took over. It was the culture was moving in this direction and that allowed for this, this religious sect to take over. And, and nowadays they would never include something like that where there's any kind of culpability on the part of the left and wanting to censor and, you know, which is exactly what's happening. I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. I want Amy and Alex to say what they think of the book. <laughs> I guess I'll go. I know Alex was not a fan. <laughs> so, um, I really, first of all, we stole this book for our knitters. We have a sub book club that we pilfered <laughs> for our knitters and we chose to read this. And I will say in our discussions of it, one of our members was particularly moved and like really shook by this book. Now she happens to be a doula. So that may, you know, if you don't know what a doula is, um, she may, that may, you know, have to do with her effect of it, but she was really moved by it. I read it first i think after in like 2016 because you know they kept saying this is what we're gonna be like and i'm reading it i'm going yeah i really don't understand you really really don't understand this is not not what this book is about so i re in rereading it i caught way more of the religious aspects i think that i missed the first time so many little tidbits that if you're not a christian you may or have biblical knowledge you might not have caught references to son of ha sons of ham and all these things that she had reference to that I really did, which bothered me in the TV show. I'm like, they were all white. They would have all been white because if you read the book, it clearly said <laughs> they got right. shunned everybody who was a different color. Um, but I definitely, I don't, I think I could, I'm not going to say I could see this happening. I could see how someone could see this happens that a society gets so ridiculous that a pseudo Christianity needs to come in and save everything and make everything okay again, which in turn they do not, of course, because they're human and they <laughs> get it wrong every time. <laughs> but um, I definitely saw it. I read it more from a religious aspect than the feminine. I, I didn't get the feminist. I didn't see the man hating either. I, I mean, I, I agree with everybody so far, but I definitely read it more in tune to the religious um, 
little things she would drop in, the references. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, the, the <laughs> misquoting of the scripture, I'm like, that's not what that says. <laughs> that's what would get me. Could, and could then, you see what? Could you see how, did you come away from this seeing like, oh, I could see how Alyssa Milano would be, would think that this is what's happening. Like I, I could, I, I looked at this and like, oh, if you're one of those crazy people on the left, yeah, like, like I could totally see why this is the book that you would want to make a show out of. I mean, I could see you know. how, because they have no true understanding of what she was trying to say or any true understanding of the whole point. So yeah, I could see how they're like, oh, so it's going to be. And I mean. Again, I just don't see how they could say that. I don't know. I just don't get it as a um, full-on feminist. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't see how in the eighties it would have been. You know, full-on. If feminist they made, movie, you know, I if just, they made nineteen eighty-four into a TV show, they would do the same thing they did with him. Right. Himself. Right. They would right. make it the evil Trumpian right-wing insurrectionists right. have come in and they're doing your five minutes of hate and they put up a Muslim woman because they're <laughs> such bigots. They want us yeah. to all focus our yeah. hate on the, like yeah. they would. Uh, oh, just, and instead of two, instead of two plus two is five, it would be COVID. COVID isn't the most deadly thing ever. It's like, yeah, yeah. The vaccines are <laughs> questionable. Ah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, Alex, lay it on us. Okay, so uh, I read this for the first time in 2019 for a book club, and I immediately read the Testaments after that because we were actually reading the Testaments, not um, The Handmaid's Tale. And so that was my first time, and I, I went through grad school in creative writing, so I, I probably could have maybe run into it then, but I didn't. Um, and after reading three Atwood novels, I found her language tedious and boring. And to be not in a row, I didn't read them in a row. Okay. To be fair, like there was time between the first book I read and the second book I read. Um, because I read the first book, Lady Oracle, in grad school, um, for a gothic literature course. But my problem with her language that I found was that almost all of her characters are consciously choosing the language that is being depicted. So like, for example, this is a horse historical record that the handmaid is actually picking these words. And the same is kind of true in the Testaments and the same is kind of true in uh, Lady Oracle that she's consciously picking the words. So I found that her language had nothing to do with the characters themselves. They were all about her showing off her skills as a writer and that kind of bothered me and then um because i feel like that's not really good writing if you're if it's first person if they're literally consciously choosing their words then they have to be different they they cannot be the same their their language was too just margaret atwood essentially um and then on top of that i really can't stand the idea that this could happen like that she could even conceive of it as happening because, and I feel that way about most dystopias, but uh, the reason why is because one thing, we have firearms. <laughs> and the other one is that the First Amendment is a, is partially, you know, built on the idea that we all uh, have different religious beliefs. So I'm sort of like, how do you 
create a theocracy at that point. Like you can't like and I know they oh they disrupted the constitution or whatever, but I just don't feel like it really uh like that she did the work to make it happen, you know, from a cultural standpoint. And she glosses over the, how it would have gotten to that state. Right. This kind of, yeah, yeah, she does. She definitely does. I don't feel like it was earned at all. Now, comparing it to 1984 and Brave New World, uh, Brave New World feels more realistic. But 1984 and Fahrenheit 451, the language is sort of removed. It feels almost ethereal. Uh, so the weirdness of the, those dystopias are more like removed from disbelief for me versus The Handmaid's Tale, which is far too direct. And it's a historical document even. So to me, it's too, it's too human to have that kind of like, this is an idea, you know, story. So that's one of the reasons why I didn't like it. Can we talk about so, the, the historical actually, document thing? Because I think that's a, a weird choice she made. Does anyone have an opinion about that? Can you explain? I, I exactly thought it was interesting. I, I was going to ask um, Carrie or somebody who's seen the TV show. Did the TV show have that? Because you said the TV show started where the book leaves off, but there's another whole uh, long section. It doesn't have the whole historical reference where they talk about well, this happened in Maine. And, um, no, but they and I'll talk summarize about it. They show you what happens outside of Gilead in the TV show. They show you what happens. So to answer Thomas's question, because I don't, I want to make sure everybody yeah, understands what she go means ahead. by historical going. document. There at the end of the book, mm-hmm. in case people didn't think it was a part of the book, if they thought <laughs> it was just notes, it's a part of the book. It's historical notes on The Handmaid's Tale. That's part of the book. And it's basically this professor who uh, years in the future is saying, we found this, kind of like finding Anne Frank's diary, we found this book, or these audio cassettes of this, this, this. It, it's one handmaid who recounted her tale. And so they kind of said that the whole book was was actually recorded by her, and it's a historical document in the future that they're examining to get an idea of what like life was like in Gilead. They talk about the underground woman's railway and they mm-hmm. theorize that she escaped into Canada on the railway and then made it to England and they like debate the whether or not the tapes. Yeah, the Quakers helped her. It was interesting. I like that old part. And I thought the I, same thing. I started listening to it. I'm like, am I even supposed to listen to this? What is this? And yeah. I like had to get my phone out to see if like Audible put me into another book. It's like <laughs> in screw tape letters when I did whatever version I had didn't have that thing at the end that everybody else had read. And I was like, what are they talking about? <laughs> like, but I um, but I like that. And it was a long thing. And it was done as a speech at a historical convention, like hundreds of years later. And they, and it, that's the only place that the book covers what Alex brought up or Carter brought up about. How did this happen? Like, that's where they explain you know, I it, it wasn't super believable, but that's when they started about how society went into this Gilead. And and then you find out that actually the rest of the world, including like Canada, wasn't even part of this. And they were helping fight it. And it happened in Maine. I, I've been to Maine. I don't think this can happen in Maine. Um, <laughs> but but it was interesting. And it kind of it helped me understand what she really meant by and, and why it was written that way as a first person recorded account. I do agree with what Alex said, because after I listened to that, I thought the first person account had to be by a handmaid who's like a brilliant writer and knows exactly what's going on, yet she's going along with it all. 
And and why did everybody go along with it? I also didn't understand how the, the you say about the TV show, they blame everything on the men. It is actually more like the feminist cause it, right? The, the ladies in the school were more in charge. And it seemed to me the men were in this or just going along. They're like, oh, this is cool. Sure. <laughs> they're just going along with it. It's like the so, women are actually in charge in the book. So two things he talks about in the in the end, in the historical notes, that in this totalitarian society, like they recognize that they had to get the women to control the women that no totalitarian society has ever advanced without having members of a group control their own group. I thought that was interesting. The other thing is that they, they about the constitution, I did think that part was believable, even though she doesn't go through the details of how they actually execute this coup. It's just like, yeah, Congress has gunned down, the president's gunned down, then it's happened. But some of the slow details, and I saw Amy, you were pulling some of these out and putting them in the Facebook group. The details like, where like the the ignore, ignoring takes work, like you talked about, Carter. It sort of, they just started ignoring because everything was at a slow boil. And she says it, it, something about being boiled in a bathtub slowly. And they said we have to suspend the Constitution, but it's just temporary. And that's like, I'm one of those people who believe the lockdowns were temporary. I was so ignorant. Like you, and we just kind of keep existing and keep going because it's slowly. It's like, well, this is just temporary. It's going to come back, and then. The way that her bank cards, that stuck with me from, I first read this book when I was 15 or 16. And that was before the cards were ubiquitous, I think. And 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 so later on, it occurred to me, once we were becoming of more digital currency, not digital currency, but using cards for things instead of cash, I that it always brought this book back, back to mind. The idea that I might go to the supermarket one day and it may not, my car may not work. And we've seen that happening around us. We've seen Joe Biggs and other people on the right, their banks just decide, sorry, you can't bank with us anymore. Or YouTube decides certain creators, we're not going to, or PayPal is like, we're not going to, that could happen slowly. Um, so some of these things I think are, I agree. There's parts that I, she doesn't, she kind of is hazy with the details and how would that actually work? But then other parts, I thought that's that's a great understanding of human nature that we sort of go along slowly and we just keep existing. And then she gets in a relationship with Nick and she's almost that's enough. It's like, well, I have this thing now that allows me to tolerate living this life, this one bit of joy. And people become we become I think I think in a totalitarian society, we become easily placated. We become easily like. Give me the bread and circus and I'm fine. And I'm not going to push back because there was another part in the book like that too, where she was talking about why, why they did. Oh, when Moira, Moira escaped. Right. And they're, and they're like, they said they feared, it was something like we feared Moira. She was like an elevator with no walls because we get so accustomed to our freedoms being taken away that, that for someone to rebel in that way, while we both, we both, idolized her or they liked they liked the the fact that she existed someone that broke the rules they also were terrified of her because they had become so accustomed to the rules and that's a lot of talking on my part yeah I, for me the frog in the pot thing is like that's nice but it doesn't explain that that's not a sufficient explanation for the suspension of the constitution and takeover like that's i, I get the frog in the pot analogy uh obviously it's 
old and everyone uses it. So like I get that and, and there's some truth to that, but it still wasn't enough my, But my, for me. But, but I guess my, my big thing is I about the end, about the um, historical notes part. I didn't actually like it. I didn't I didn't get anything out of the historical notes. And I was really curious about why she chose to include the historical notes, because it actually kind of ruined it for me. I wanted the story just to be over and and leave me there. And then it was like it it wasn't. um, Yeah, there was something discontinuous about it and the insights weren't very useful. So it was kind of some. references to things and and poor explanations that were glossed over because he was having a conversation like he's he's giving a speech with people who already know the history so just kind of make some comments about stuff and like i don't i didn't get anything out of that and i kind of preferred that she just didn't have that i didn't read that part until this morning i skipped it i kind of skimmed through it um and even this morning when I read it, I couldn't read the whole thing. I, I felt similar. Like I didn't need it, but it was kind of interesting um, to have it there and get a little bit more insight on what happened and why. Um, but I wanted to say something almost kind of in defense of Miss um, Atwood. Um, when I think of what was going on during that time um, and why she was writing what she's writing here, you know, it makes me think that she's actually saying, hey, feminists, hey, buddies, let's be really careful what we wish for. And there's two instances in the book where she says something like this, where she has often talked about her mother and how her mother is what we think of as a typical feminist. I mean, she was nice to her husband, the, uh, her son-in-law, Luke. I think that was his name. And, you know, they had some banter back and forth. But she was, you know, the, the what we think of as a, a loud, strong, proud feminist. Um, and then she, when thinking about her mother, she says something like she got what she wanted. And does she know that this is what she wanted? And on two separate occasions, she talks about that um, having this happen. And it's almost like this is what they asked for. And a lot of it was it, what, what the answer were teaching were, was things like, well, you know what? Remember how it used to be. You couldn't walk out in the street. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that because men are men are really aggressive. Men are going to rape you. Men are going to beat you. And this is for your own safety. And we just went through. I haven't heard this much lately, but the whole rape culture thing. You know, men are like this toxic masculinity. You have to be less feminine. Now, as Carter mentioned earlier, instead of men saying, oh, no, that sucks. Go away. Uh, a lot of men have just said, okay, I'm going to be feminine. So it didn't actually go that way. <laughs> but she's... Wait, she's do that of, voice again for us, Thomas. Okay, I'm going to be feminine. Okay. <laughs> but she it's almost like she was warning her buddies to say, hey, you know what? If we keep saying that we can't go out on our own, they're going to say, oh, okay, well, you can't go out on your own. It's too dangerous for you. So let's make sure we keep you safe. And this is in part them keeping them safe. Yeah, she said at one point, my, you know, my mom always wanted like a women's society or women's and a women's culture. And now we have it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to say something about what Alex was saying about the the writing, which I do get. I, I understand what you're saying. But I feel like if you read it, 
I, I feel like Alfred's writing it or, or, or if you believe the historical telling into audio cassette, because that kind of part two was a little, eh, cause it's like, well, if she's telling it into an auto audio cassette, this is after the fact she even says she glosses over some things. She doesn't want to say some things. She changes, you know, she retells the stories of how things happen in herself. But at the same time, is she really going to be quite that poetic about certain things when she's retelling the story? But then at other times, her story is very point blank, not very much bells and whistles. And she's pretty, you know, not as poetic about it. So yeah, is she really going to retell it that way differently in audio cassette? But I interpreted it not as her until I got to the end and I remembered the part about the historical takes. I interpreted as I'm reading it as she's like literally writing a diary, which I realize makes no sense because she's not supposed to have a diary and she can't write. But that's how I'm reading it in my head is how she would be saying it in her head so that sometimes when she's laying there at night and she's just staring at this this medallion on the ceiling, she's waxing poetic. And other times she's laying there with the commander and (laughs) she's, you know, thinking these things in her head. So I kind of interpreted the writing that way, that it was variable based on her mood and her experience of the day and whatever was going on. And it didn't really dawn on me to about the audio part until like literally just now, like that doesn't make sense why she would have. Right. Cause it was, she wasn't recording that it extemporaneously, right? Right. Yeah. That she wasn't recording at the time things reviewed. were happening. Yeah. She was recording it afterwards. Right. So why was she really, really poetic and really, really passionate about certain parts and then just gloss over these parts. But again, to the part about, I feel like, I feel like one of the reasons Atwood doesn't give you a whole lot of information about what happens is a, so your imagination can run wild about how these things happen. But she also kind of paints her as not, I mean, she's what a data entry clerk kind of thing. She goes to college. She, you know, has a relationship with a married man. You know, she's she wasn't a poet in the prior to this, right? Yeah, it's she not like build her yeah, as right. this highly intellectual, <laughs> right. highly you know fulfilled person. So I think that that's a good explanation for how how it happens. As you get distracted with the, you're not going to pay attention if it doesn't matter to you. So it's not until she realizes, hey. I can't go shopping and I can't use my card. I can only use Luke's card. And that's weird. Meanwhile, Mora has been trying to tell her this for <laughs> however long. So I, think- I did like that Moira was like, I, I did like the I told you so aspect of, of Moira a little I like bit. Her. Like, I really like cause, her. Because I know, I know there's a lot of people now that kind of relate to Moira. Like, we told you this was happening. Like, it wasn't going to be a temporary lockdown. Like, right. yeah, guys, we told you this. And Moira kind of rolls with it. But I... I want to, Alex, by the way, I, I want I want you to comment on this because one of the things I love about Alex, just everyone who's not heard her, like I, I never know what the hell she's going to think about a book. So the, the, I did not expect this from you. Uh, but I will say I, I did view the writing as indulgent. Like I, I, Atwood is clearly in love with language. She clearly is a master with, she's a wordsmith. She's a master wordsmith. She's poetic. I didn't know she had written books of poetry, but that makes sense. I viewed this as very indulgent writing from from her perspective. And I could see if, like Alex, I read three books and I was like this, and it was like, all right, I'm kind of tired of your self-indulgence, Margaret. Like, I they, it was cool. You're like, I got it, but I'm kind of over it. And and I explained this, I explained this to my wife a little bit, and she said, Oh, I loved that language when I was in high school, but like I'm over it now. So 
<laughs> Alex, is that, did you feel like she was indulgent? Is that what it was? Yeah, she's incredibly like, look at how awesome I am with language. With, And it's okay to do that. It, it kind of reminds me of bebop, bebop jazz or um, heavy metal where they're like, look how many notes I can play, how quickly and precisely. And you're like, yeah, good, but it's not a good song. <laughs> you know, like, because the problem is, is that she's sacrificing actual character building through the language to show off. And I'm not okay with that. Like, I, you can still be poetic and be true to your character that you're trying to present. And you can be as self-indulgent as you want to be in poetry, that it pretty much is. And also it's sustainable in such a short amount of words. But it is not, to me, sustainable from the perspective of writing a novel. And especially a novel that's supposed to be first person, and not just first person, but first per person composed. So I, right. I find it really on audio funny. tapes. Yeah, on no, audio no. tape. Like from the perspective of how we think, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. There's so many points where she's like temporarily close as she's telling this, but that's not possible because she's recording it at one after the fact. And then there are points where she she does this thing. It's uh, there's a short story she wrote called Happy Endings, where there's all these different scenarios that come out different ways, and that's basically what she did with the sex scene with uh, Nick. And I was like, that's not really how it happened. Actually, it happened like this. And then she does it, and I'm like, okay, at that point, you know. But then she does it a third time. She right. does it again. That's not really how it happened. And and I'm like, okay, now you're just lying to me, and I'm pissed. <laughs> that's not how it happened either it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't keep doing that to your reader because then i'm like i'm wasting my time now i don't believe anything you told me you could be totally lying about everything you said because you're you want to i don't know work out your psychological problems and that's fine but it's not good for your plot yeah it certainly doesn't go with audio recording idea uh she could have written a diary afterward, not a diary, but like the account of things that happened to her and gotten all poetic about it. But as an audio diary, no way it could have happened. Could yeah, I would have found it much more believable if it was a if it was written manuscript, like a written memoir that was discovered yeah. later. Because then I could have thought, well, she edited this and like spent time writing it the way she wanted to write it. OK, so none of this bothered me. Um and I don't, I mean, I guess I just, I like beautiful writing. I like to fall into it and get hooked by a book where like you get hooked by a song where you can't stop reading it. And it also didn't affect my, like, I felt like I know this character very well because it's like reading her inner thoughts and the way that she writes, like it happened like this. No, it happened like this is I think I think it's almost like reading a journal where you're reinterpreting it. You're sort of like, this is what happened in this scenario. Or am I reading, or let me, let me tell it in this way from the other person's point of view kind of thing. I don't know. I just, I like that. None of that bothers yeah, me. I, I however, like that too. I, it, it, yeah. It, however, I don't ahead, think the, at the end, um, the fact that she like tacked on that, the thing about it being a historical document, mm -hmm. um, I agree. It would have been better without that because then you're not even wondering, did she record it? What are the mechanics of how this story was written down? Then you're not even wondering because there's numerous stories 
where you're just in the character's head and you don't know how or why. There's numerous stories where you're in the and it doesn't tell you at the end. This is an audiobook, you know, like you don't have you don't have to grapple with that question. You're just magically in the head. And so I think it would have been better if it didn't give you that kind of like this character dictated this into an audio into to tape recorder. So you have to think about that. I think the reason why she did that, and I'll finish here on this point, was I think she did that because, and I and I, I wish she hadn't, but I think she was trying to say, like this is how cold and removed it is down the road, all these hundreds of years later, like some lecturers coming in and telling you about this. And this is just, it's all the personality is removed. There's this cold clinical explanation of this very personal journal. And, and they and laugh at was, things in a way they, yeah, they're like, they're like yeah. laughing at the end. He's like, any questions, you know? And it's like this, you just sort of the distance that history provides now that it's something in the past that you can just look at it clinically, this very personal like looking at something like Anne Frank and saying, here's this very personal story that you can read of this little girl keeping a journal of what it was actually like, or here's this very clinical removed historical interpretation, you know, of what things were. I don't know. I think that, I think that's probably why she did it, but I agree. I think it would have been better without it. That's a long ramble. I thought a, a little bit, or I wondered anyway, if it's either an accidental or on purpose excuse, like Margaret Atwood is put, puts that stuff at the end to explain why there are disjointed things. Like one of the things she says is they didn't actually know which order the tapes were in and they had to guess. And some of them are probably out of order. Like, like, and, and a whole bunch of other things related to that. Like it explains why she doesn't really say how this really happened or could it really happen or exactly where it is. It's like an excuse in a way. She doesn't have to fully develop the story because of that because it's a hundreds of years later professor analyzing these tapes that they found. They don't really know why. And it also explains why there's only the one character. And maybe that's Margaret Atwood. It's not really her character, like Alex said. But she doesn't develop any other characters, really. You don't really know very much about them. And she doesn't have to because of the format. It's sort of an excuse, I think. See, but I, find, I think it's more terrifying to not know for her to leave out all these details that lets your imagination wonder how did they get to this point? And I think that's much more interesting than if they gave you all the answers, because I think that's more of the lesson is that, Hey, why don't you sit here and think about how this could happen and if it could happen and what are you going to do about it if it does? So I, I like that. There's not all the, it's not all spelled out for you. I don't want to know. You know, when it's left open like that though, I think of how that, fails because so many people in the u.s even back in the 80s owned firearms and i got into an argument with another child-free woman about this which is kind of funny but we were like uh i said people would fight against this and uh and and she was like oh people don't fight because they've got kids and i was like what i'm pretty sure that's why a lot of people fight is because they have kids that they don't want a future like this for their children so I was like, I mean, isn't that what uh, was that Mel Gibson movie? I've never, uh, Patriot, The Patriot? I'm pretty sure like there's so many stories about people going off to war or fighting something because they want a better future for their children. So I'm sort of like, it's, like I, I see Americans, especially as people who would fight this, like even, it's... even Christian people would fight this, I would think. 
I think it's interesting you brought up the Patriot because as you were saying that, I'm, I was thinking it can go both ways having kids. There's going to be people that are going to be Jimmy Carters and think that, well, if I just keep um, um, accommodating, 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 I'm going to be safer. I'm, I'm doing this for my kids. I'm keeping them safe because even if they're living in a dystopia, at least they're alive. Um, and even in the Patriot up front, it was because he was a father that he didn't want to go fight because he thought he had more of a uh, an obligation to his kids and it wasn't until his son was actually murdered that he went into the fight so did he start fighting for patriotism um, or did he start fighting for revenge it's what you're bringing up it's part of why i said like i don't know why she picked me that's that just seems ludicrous it's like picking texas for this to happen like how about new york city or something like there's counties in maine that are bigger than massachusetts you know, like, and you think you're going to go in there and do this? And there's a shotgun between every door and grandmother sitting there knitting is perfectly capable of picking up that shotgun. Like, I don't think it could happen there. I don't think it happened in America anywhere. But maybe not, think she's never been to Maine. Well, I think Carter's mentioned this before where I'm not always confident. All these people will talk about the Second Amendment and even own firearms are actually going to pick up and do something. It's very different when it's like, all right, somebody's somebody's here telling you stuff it's not like they're getting shot at you shot back um it's very different to actually stand up and start saying you know what if you cross this line i'm just going to start shooting um especially when you have your kids downstairs so you know i can imagine that people think that oh you know what i've got all these weapons and we're going to do all this maybe you will maybe you won't and i'm sure it takes a certain amount of people to do it um but i'm not always confident that it's going to happen yeah, I the, think you the, would probably the, uh, try to never... escape, right? You would try – like I would want to escape to Canada with my kids, but that right. escape would be an armed escape. And if it wasn't working out and it had to be shoot my way through the border and hope I live, that's how that would go probably, right? Yeah, but, I'll stand at the border while you kids run. I, I hope I'll meet you later. I'm sorry if I don't. Right, right. And the um, – the, the, the attitude you hear a lot of people like it'll never happen here, you know, blah, blah, blah. like, yeah, what Thomas is saying is is true. If they start coming around, um, I, I people have met my girlfriend like she lived in South Africa through this whole exact process where everybody had guns. And when Mandela took over, the police went around and got all the guns. Guess what? You know, when like 10 cops show up and, you know, are willing to they'll do something like tie down the woman and rape her and then kill the father if you don't give them the guns almost everybody gives up their guns that's what happens unless people get together in a group um, you have no chance against the state if they decide to do that that could happen I just think Maine's an unlikely place it's easier to happen in a in a city well and I would think as that started to happen you would start to have people develop groups like if people started to see this is what they're doing now everywhere like you would start to have yeah. immediately groups would congeal of like, all right, like because and one person can't fight the entire sheriff's department in your local county, but 20 of you can. Yeah, Possibly, I, I right? think it would be hard. And the, the ratio of people is different there than here. But um, I've heard stories about how that happened. And and yeah, like people say, like, it could never happen here. Like, eh, don't be so sure. As Thomas pointed out, don't be so sure that you wouldn't willingly give up 
that a lot of people wouldn't oh, willingly. I, I, I agree. I just think that would have to be covered in the book. That like there would be it would be a rougher transition. Like I agree, it could happen, but it couldn't happen in such a way that you could skip over it in a historical account of what like it, it wouldn't just bang, we're here. It would have been oh, there was a really rough patch where there was lots of fighting and this happened and that <clears> happened, or they went from door to door and did this. And some people like, it would be, there would be more agitation. There wouldn't just be like, we shot Congress and now guys with guns that we're not sure if they're the military or not are in charge. Oh, well. Hey, Matt, and she I just wanted to make book, sure Which Matt made it less to... realistic. Go ahead. I just want to make sure Matt gets to say something because he think he was trying to say something and he's on a lag. Uh, sorry about that. Um, yeah, it was about the plausibility of the the plot devices. I mean, it's either speculative fiction or science fiction, depending on your view. And nothing dates those genres more quickly than um, being very precise about near future events. Because, I mean, even if we look back just 30 years to um, the 80s, you know, it's such a radically different um, landscape than we have now. Um, but in so many ways, it's exactly the same. Um, <clears throat> so it seemed to me that she was more looking to um, soft focus a number of elements so she could get to the parts of the story that she was more keen uh, to express. How you get there is less important. And um, as I was um, trying to suggest before about, you know, it didn't have to be Christianity. It didn't have to be Maine. Um, just the fact that there is a totalitarian state that wants to own the reproductive faculties of uh, women. That is the important part of it. And it's the division along sex lines that seemed important. So, you know, if everyone stands up and uh, has the last gunfight, the OK Corral or whatever is somewhat, it, it doesn't advance the story she's trying to tell. Um, and, and, you know, the specifics about how they took over the government and shut down the society are not as important as the aftermath. Um, Offred is the aftermath, basically. Um, so for me, that it didn't bother me in the slightest. Um, I've read some um, science fiction and speculative fiction where you've just gone, seriously, you went into so much detail there, and now it's already dated beyond uh, question. And um, as a corollary to that, um, men tend to write hard sci-fi. They explain all the details. They explain um, how it happens and all the um, made-up physics and whatever. Um, female sci-fi and speculative fiction, often in my experience, tends to um, be split along the same, you know, things for men, relationships for women. And so that is more how I um, perceive The uh, Handmaid's Tale as being um, an, an efficient story. Um, she, she told the, the softer elements, um, which yeah, I, I liked, definitely. And I didn't feel that the, uh, the end um, sequence detracted too much from it. Um, and my biggest takeaway from that section was... Um, totalitarian states do not last they fall it might take a couple of hundred years but they fall and then they become curiosities which will be studied for time immemorial and we will never let this happen again until of course it does do you think it took away from the impact of like sometimes when you write um a dystopian novel like this part of your goal 
is to warn people to to behave in a certain way or not let this thing happen do you think it it lessens the impact a little bit when you see at the end of the book eh, actually everything went back to normal so uh it was really scary but don't worry everything reverted back to normal and uh it turned out not to be a big deal whereas you know if, if you like 1984 ends and you're like how long does this go on All right yeah I, I mean it didn't detract for it for me because two or three hundred years that's the entire um sort of age of the country in which you're talking from you know that that's a long span of time it's long enough that um okay it can be in the cultural memory but it's it's a long time a lot happens in two to three hundred years um so yeah things flip in cycles and um we're often talking these days about how we're swinging so far this way it's gonna the you know, pendulum will swing back again but when you sort of drill down into those ideas, you are looking in terms of uh, decades-long cycles or um, fifty-year-long cycles, and you know that that's getting on for a human lifetime. And so, yeah, it, it does have a, a, a span of time that um, makes one uh, quite disquiet. Um, you know, it's it's not like oh yeah, the kids will be okay; they won't be. They, they will suffer as well. Yeah, I like what you said about the difference between those two types of writing, and it made me think of Fahrenheit 451, which I read in book club here, and how incredibly detailed he was about so many things. Um, and I, I found that interesting, and I found that amazing and impressive, um, but I felt the same as you did I here. Alex, when I hear you bring up those points, I'm like, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make sense. But when I was reading the book, a, um, it didn't impact me, um, and so thank you for ruining the book for me, because um, now that's all I can think about. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there, are, I, I do feel like a, I, I still enjoyed it, and I think um, what Eric just said is really was my take, which was I wasn't as concerned about how everything came to be, but more concerned about the death of humanity in the instance that these things happen. Um, and they keep happening over and over. And it, she did a good job of tying it to the nature of humanity, which is a warning against us um, coming to a place like this over and over and over again. And the real question for me is, um, what what is it about human nature that keeps pulling us in this direction? Because we have places like that that exist today. We have places like that that existed in, throughout the 20th century. Uh, we have people within our own nation that are um, hell-bent on doing some of those same things, whether or not they know it. So that that was the that's that was my take as far as what the purpose of what she was saying was. And I really didn't get caught up in too many of the um, how it came to happen details. There's a part she I think you're right, Thomas, that. What I like about it maybe, maybe is that it is speaking to like what human nature, what is it about humans that allows us to keep for the, allows us to keep going along these kind of historical events. Why can't we prevent them from happening? What is it about us that's complicit? And there's even some parts of this where she, I think she shows great insight into human nature and our capacity for good and evil. 
um, where she's talking about, for example, when they're in the rec center or whatever it is, when they're getting their handmade training and they're going through this ritual where Janine is on the floor talking about her abortion and being gang raped and she's sobbing and crying because the ants are saying, whose fault is it? It was your fault. And all the handmaids have to say it was your fault. And she says she, even though she knows what's being done to Janine, she despises her for a moment and she doesn't want to be her. And she, and then she regrets that she, this, this human feeling of, of looking down on this person. And there's a couple of moments like that where I think she's sort of telling you something about human nature. And I like that about it. Yeah. And we've uh, on the Wednesday night shows, we talk a lot of, well, we talk, I listen (laughs) to a lot of these stuff about reason and, the human capacity for reason, which is what makes us human, um, separates us from the animal kingdom. And she even touches on that. Um, she talks about making distinctions between objects to maintain maintain sanity. So she's going through the um, garden and she's she's looking at she's thinking about the garden, thinking about the red of the tulips, and think and looking at the um, red on the masked face of the man who was hanging on the wall. And she specifically talks about the way I keep my sanity is through making distinctions um, between a lot of these little things. So in some way, Margaret Atwood is um, speaking out against what woke is today, which is a denial of um, reason and a denial of objective reality. So I, I, I start to see her feminism as that old Camille Paglia type feminism where I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm on board with that. And I don't know what she's doing these days or Margaret Atwood's doing these days. because I keep hearing about some of the stuff that she's talking about. But this book is over and over and over again. It's anti-woke. She um, brings up the, the human capacity or, or need even to consider people as it. Like in several times, like in the scene when they bring the guy in after the three women are hanging and with no evidence at all, they just say, this guy was accused of rape and all the handmaids get up and kick him to death. Like, like, and she says, like, everybody has converted from thinking of that person as him to an it. Like, that's a necessary step to get to that point. And then the mob just piles on and perfectly what you think is a perfectly nice woman who's a handmaid starts kicking him into the head until he's dead. They would do that to Kyle Rittenhouse in a second. Here's white supremacist. You know, they would do that to Kavanaugh in a second. Today, they they actually kicked him to save (laughs) him, right? That good one kicked him to save that you're talking about, right? Myra. Yeah, Mora. No, the handmaiden that Keith is talking about of Warren or whatever, not of Warren. Of of, Glenn. of Glenn, of she Glenn. kicked him. She kicked him to save him. She right. tried to kill him quickly so that he right. wouldn't have to. Right, right but so everyone else, like everyone else, was the yeah. yeah. And they would do that to some of these people if they could do it. If it was legal, if this is, if the government said, "Here's Kavanaugh, ha, 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 he's a rapist," they'd be like in there, jumping on him, like. Yeah, and she that is talking. actually what they did to Kyle. Right. Exactly that. Right. She even talks a little bit about what we call cancel culture today. I remember she says, um, it's no excuse that what they did was legal at the time. Their crimes are retroactive. They have committed atrocities and must be made into examples for the rest. So all these things that people are 
making excuses for and utilizing as their cultural milieu, she's actually speaking out against all throughout this book. I like the little nuggets in these dystopian novels, like the one I put on Facebook, Carrie, about um, that was when they suspended the Constitution. They said it would be temporary, which you read that now and you're like, why would that even be acceptable? Um, There wasn't even any rioting in the streets. People stayed home at night watching television, looking for some direction. There wasn't even an enemy you could put your finger on. And that's the kind of stuff I read that I'm like, hello? (laughs) Oh, that's different. That's the thing, though, that the problem is, is that there would be some protesting because at the beginning of the lockdowns last year, there were people protesting them. Right, but we silenced them. Immediately. And censor you. But but she said that they, everybody stayed home. That's impossible. You cannot get 100% of the people to go, yeah, sure, I'm fine with that. Like, no, we didn't even get that done last year. I think she means for the most part. I mean, that's the way I talked right. about this past year and a half. We didn't right. do shit. Yeah, there were people. I went to a couple protests, but we didn't. We collectively, we let it happen. We're still in lockdowns in some she, places. She like, reads like a sheep. Right. We, we sheep. as a people. You know? And she does mention later that there are protests that um, that some of the people went to that then they quit going because men with guns would show up and shoot them all. <laughs> so, um, but I that's the way that I read Kyle. that. I don't. Yeah, I don't read that, that that means literally like nobody tried to protest this. I just think it means we didn't as a society. And I, I think that's the same with lockdowns. We didn't. And with mass mandates, we I'm, didn't. And I'm now with vaccine. See, Carrie. Over, over here in the uh, UK, I mean, there are um, protests with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I've seen drone footage um flying over them it, it's it's not thousands it's it's millions of people this is massive streets in uh, the center of london with drone footage flying over them it would take several minutes for it to fly over it's not even covered in the mainstream media at all it's it, it doesn't even touch so you know you can um protest as much as you like but if no one can see the protest it doesn't happen so maybe the handmaid just didn't see the protesting or she didn't want to see the protesting. That's amazing, Matt, because I have no idea that that's happening. <laughs> it's happening right across uh, Europe as well. I mean, um, there are some alt media uh, streams that are showing um, protests against the vaccine passports in France and Italy. And there is zero coverage over here of that. Um, I don't know if you're seeing anything over in the States, but none of the mainstream media is covering it at all. But this is it's it is tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people just all out on the streets and they're actually showing satellite footage from a different time to say no nothing to see here nothing's going on and they've been caught in the act like people comparing um drone footage that they've taken that is time stamped to what has been put out on, um, by the mainstream press it's minimally covered here and not in the mainstream you might see a video on Twitter, but I hear more about it from people I know. Like, that's interesting. I didn't know about the London one. Um, I know in Austria, there's huge protests going on. Same kind of thing when they just did their lockdown. But the reason I know is because I have a family member that used to live there and her neighbor sent her a video. Like, that's how you find that out. Not see it on the news. 
Yeah, my sister lives in uh, Australia now, and I'm telling her that people are being shot protesting with rubber bullets um, in Melbourne, and she's like, no, no, that that's not happening. Like, people are posting this. I'm looking at the videos. These aren't like radicals. These are um, sort of mums and, and grands, you know, with um, eyes that are bruised beyond and, and showing their backs with like this big um, welts where and they're holding up the rubber bullets as well you know and these are just off people's facebook um streams though if you try and find them it's deleted wow let's do some super chats carrie do you want to read some super chats uh, the chat uh if i if i go if my video breaks up carter you just take over Eric okay. O'Sullivan. Hello, Eric. He says, hey, all just wanted to support this channel. Uh, read Atwood's Orcs and Crake trilogy. Sheesh. Want your socks scared off of you post-pandemic? It's got the goods. Thanks, Karen Carter. Actually, I have not read that one. That one came out uh, when I kind of went off Atwood for a while. And so I'm enjoying having reread this one. I'm like, I'm going to get back into it. Thank you. Uh, somebody else recommended that one to me recently. TPS says, the U.S. is going this far in ideology with the fear of woke, self-censorship, government-required training. That's a good point. Do you want to get the rest, Carter? Uh, yeah, I'm just thinking about that comment. Um, yeah, they're not quite as far as this yet, but they, I guess they're headed that direction. Another one, the next one from TPS also. I did a film legend analysis with the result that men physically fight because of women slash children women physically fight up until they have kids okay uh yeah i mean i i do think i think when men have kids generally they they do start to consider they can't be as reckless um so I think they're probably less likely to fight when they think that there's another option, but they're more likely to stand their ground when they believe that there is no other option. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. All right. That's it for super chats. Any other comments on the book? Anyone, is there anything that anyone wants to say about it that you haven't said or haven't heard anyone say yet? I don't think anyone's going to be making memes that say make Atwood fiction again, like Orwell. Like it's, yeah. I don't think that. I, I kind of want to watch the series now just to see how different it is. Um, so the first season isn't so bad because they, they mostly stick to the book. They change a few things, but they do slip in little things here and there to let you know kind of that they're interpreting this as as – uh, the lens through one lens through which we can view Trumpism in the right, which is ridiculous. So is is the so the commander is orange? <laughs> is that the, yeah. is that their interpretation? <laughs> they also, uh, I mean, they're trying to paint a narrative that the you know it's the sixteen nineteen project narrative. It's all those narratives they're selling us that the world that the U.S. is an oppressive white supremacist heteropatriarchy that hates gay people and hates women and hates Muslims and people of color. And, you know, that if Republicans have their way, it's very much a partisan 
it's it's this tribalist thing that we're 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 always given this false dichotomy in the media now it's like you know you got to go with the democrats who are the good guys or the republicans who are the bad guys and it's that like and that simplistic and that's just bullshit yeah and they they also paint yeah go ahead i was gonna say there's no politics in this really from the sense of Mm -mm. two parties fighting and arguing like there's only one party it's like Orwell's 1984. There's one party. So there's no politics in it at all. If I watch a TV show and it was, you know, all the men had Magda hats on and that's what it was about. And the Democrats were fighting. And they're like, no, they're making all that up. Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, there wasn't even a like resistance, political resistance talked about at the beginning. Even it was like right. she talks about the government as one homogenous glop. So did anybody she didn't even Alex exist. Reed? Oh, sorry. I was just curious. Anybody besides Alex read the Testaments? Is it worth reading? Did Carrie, did you read the Testaments? Well, Alex, you didn't read. think this was worth reading. So. Uh, is the, the Testaments is, is new. It's How new? She wrote recently. I, I never read it. Yeah, what? it's very new. Yeah, oh. I haven't read it. I, oh. I'm, I'm, I, it's I, even I, less I'm, worth it. <laughs> yeah, see, Atwood now, what's happened to her, I think, is that so I think your interpretation, she's not, this is very anti-woke in my opinion, even though it's feminist, it's not woke feminist yet. It's not feminism as, as having been incorporated into the Borg, the woke Borg. And she's still anti-censorship. She's like, she's like a classical liberal in a lot of ways. It's like, hey, be, be, you're going to get what you want if you're pushing censorship and book, book burning and uh, kind of an orthodoxy. And I think you can't easily classify her as being woke by reading this i mean actually i think i think it's anti-woke but now she's living in this world where her book is being celebrated by the woke it's been co-opted by by the woke and she's gotten into hot water several times by coming out and defending professors male professors who've had me too allegations launched against them with no evidence and who've been mobbed and canceled she's come out against cancel culture she wrote piece of not angels or devils like we're just like men that's the whole point of feminism was like to be treated equally not to be treated better than or less than and that's what that's what i used to think i thought that's what feminism was about too and so i i read that resonates with me because that's what i think she's starting to see the excesses of the woke movement however most recently she got into hot water yet again with the woke by by tweeting out an article that was critical of the cult-like nature of trans ideology. And, and when she got into hot water with the movement because they want her, she was kind of crappy on Twitter. She kind of threw J.K. Rowling under the bus to save herself and, you know, sort of like, I'm not a turf. Here's a turf. You know, it's like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> that goes against everything. I, I don't know. I just, she's like one of those people online right now where I don't know which way she's going to go. But it sounds, so like, it sounds like she threw Moira under the bus there. Yeah, that's a good point. Threw Moira. And so, Alex, I, I trust you. I have not wanted to read the Testament because I was like, oh, she wrote that since the TV show. And she's it's probably she's probably moving more in that woke direction. Who knows? She's influenced by the popularity of it, you know. I think it actually damages the handmaid's tale quite a bit because your understanding is that the handmaid the the place of the handmaid's tale lasts longer, right? It it lasts a while. Like this is the beginning, but it lasts a while. It doesn't. 
according to the testaments it doesn't last very long at all uh so it's a little it, it makes it a little silly at that point even more so for anyone who thought that the that, that the historical thing kind of took the bite out of it it makes it even less biting uh less terrifying because you're like well then it hardly lasted any time at all um and and it really really brings home the idea that atwood cannot vary her language for her characters because she she jumps through three different characters throughout that novel so it makes it's way more obvious there okay can i make it uh, this is where we're going to find common ground alex so i love all of her old stuff um and i tried to continue reading her but i quit reading her right around the time of blind assassin and it felt to me sort of like how i love tori amos and i used to listen to every album but after uh oh gosh what was that one there was one she did where i just i was like i can't keep up i can't do this anymore you're not growing <laughs> And I had to stop with Tori for a while, and I had to stop with Margaret Atwood for a while. And uh, and I, you're making me think maybe I shouldn't pick it back up. Although I heard Orcs and Crake is good, but I, I I'm a strong believer in like reading people's work in order of their publication because you can kind of see their growth and then when they stagnate, when, yes, they, when they when stagnate, they level yeah, off. Yeah. And almost every writer does if they're writing for more than ten years, they can't help themselves, especially the literary ones. Uh, like first novels tend to suck, which is understandable. It's your first outing. Uh, second ones are sometimes sophomore, but then when you get around three and four, they start getting astride, and then they just kind of like after ten years, they're kind of just. <laughs> and it it's it's hard. It's hard to keep that up because uh, as a reader, because you were like, I loved this. I there were so many gems, especially like. If their their first novels will be rough, but there'll be something like exciting and new about it, that's why I got published. But it, and then they smooth out their edges as a writer, and then they just sort of like it's like they're doing it on autopilot essentially. And it, it gets, sounds like it, Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that see that happens. I think all kinds of you can get you can get to that place where you get stagnant. Yeah. And and uh, I, 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 yeah, a lot of musicians do that or they try and do the Madonna thing where they try and keep up and changing, but they they actually suck at the they, they they're they're really good at their their original style was really good, but they try and adapt it to, to you know, capture Gen Z or millennials. And it's like, actually, you suck at that. Uh, so there's there's two paths they seem to go like either they stagnate or they try and keep with the times and suck it's do you know any writers who have kind of alex can you think of anyone who kept it up and kept being fresh and interesting and kept going i can't really think of anyone um really like i, I no one comes to mind as someone who was good their entire career honestly i i can say that of a director i feel like david lynch was good for his entire oh, career yeah. but he also stopped making movies yeah, <laughs> and he was like, "I think I'm done," and I, I think that was probably the smartest move he could have made. But you know, like I, I, I really can't think of any writers because, for one thing, most artists can't stop themselves. They will keep going until they die. They can't, they cannot help themselves. I get it. I'm one too. I'm probably never gonna stop. This isn't just you know, you, it's like breathing to you. You have to keep going. So uh, I'm gonna like I get it, but you're probably gonna get tired at some point. I actually give Margaret Atwood a lot more books than you do. Too. Since this is about her book, I'll say 
I have her, she's good for like a good, like for nine, nine books before she went stale for me. So get into her earlier stuff if you liked this one. Is this her early stuff? What is this? Is, where does this fall in the Atwood Was this lineage? like two or three? Edible Woman was first, I think. Uh, I think this might have been her second one or third one. Are, are they different or is Surfacing. it all kind of the same thing? Surfacing was first. It's all themes of it's – it's a lot of female protagonists and it's a lot of this kind of inside the head, very poetic writing. And there are these themes that what Carter's going to call – the some say, oh, it's it's got feminism in it. But I think you would still like some of it. I think Surfacing and Edible Woman both came before this one. Let's do. Uh, I'm one just more guessing, but I. Oh, go, yeah. ahead. go ahead, Keith. Sorry. I was just going to say I would have assumed that the other books would be pretty similar, and that I read this one, so I already got Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood. I don't need to read any more of her books. Like I already understand her thing. And a lot of authors do that. Not all, but kind of like Alex said, they they hit the plateau. It's hard. It's hard to be creative, and it isn't the kind of science fiction or dystopia that I like. Um, somebody brought it up earlier, like kind of hard versus soft science fiction and development of the plot. One of the books we read earlier in in book club was the um, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, where he, he really lays out everything. Like, he includes, like, how does stuff get to the moon and why did they do this? And, like, I like that because it makes it real to me. I like science fiction writers like David Brin. He's got a Ph.D. in physics. Like, that's a good background to write science fiction. I don't like Tolkien. Margaret Atwood's more like Tolkien. Like, like it's not as realistic and I don't enjoy it as much. That's what I was thinking of when I mentioned that it wasn't 451, it was Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Sorry, Gleyburn. But Heinlein's uh, telephone still had wires even though they're on the moon. You know, he got that specific and that's what dated it so much for me. It's like, oh no, we need to collect the, connect the wires again so we can talk to people. Yeah. They didn't have cell phones. Yeah, you have He's to a technical background. Things, I think he's an engineer. Yeah, but there's danger doing that, right? As as I think it's being pointed out, right? There's danger there because mm -hmm. it's you inevitably get something wrong with tech, and then it if if you do too much tech in there, it dates it so much that you can't read it, and it makes it hard later because it's like ah, you know, it's like I uh, I watch Die Hard every year at at Christmas, and my daughter's like, why don't they just have like doesn't everyone have a cell phone? Like why? Like it's, it's like the entire plot falls apart with cell phones, like. There's there's plenty of things that like now granted that's not science fiction so you can kind of rewind and put yourself in the in that headspace but uh, when science fiction gets it wrong like that sometimes it's it is sometimes hard to read so uh, I get the, although I love Moon as a Harsh Mistress so um, hey there's a couple more chats um, oh and just to clarify for anyone listening to a correction so this book uh, Alex pointed out this is her sixth or seventh book the edible woman then surfacing, then Lady Oracle, which Alex says she likes. Bodily harm, Life Before Man, Bodily Harm, then The Handmaid's Tale. And there's a few more after that that are pretty good. Let's opinion. do a super chat Don from Don B. B. Says, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Carrie, if you want to. Uh, this book is actually pro-sanctity of life, marriage, and motherhood. Even the wokeness of the show proves those truths. Thank you, Don. Yep. Um, 
All right, I think that's it for Super Chats. Is there anything else before we call it a day? Is there anything, any other comments, thoughts, or points anyone wants to make about the book? The biggest thing I took from the book was um, it's almost like a, um, a cry to um, her lost child. That was the most important thing that I took um, from it, I think. All of the other stuff was important and whatever. But there was uh, one one quote I wanted to squeeze in, if I, um, if I may. Um, I've been obliterated for her. I'm only a shadow now, far back behind the glib, shiny surface of this photograph. The shadow of a shadow, as dead mothers become. You can see it in her eyes. I am not there. And uh, when I was making notes, I just put, that's possibly the saddest sentence I've ever um, ever heard. Yeah. That was my take. Yeah, having children, I remember reading that part, and that was not fun to read. But yeah. she did her job. Um, I, Which I think, is one thing I appreciate yeah. about her feminism is that it's uh, – it's a pro-mom feminism, which is not uh, ubiquitous. Yeah, I think the fact that at an hour and a half, we're feeling a little bit like, okay, that's about all there was to the book. It reminds me that even though I did enjoy it and the reasons I did enjoy it were because, um, and I'm starting to think now in part that it gives me uh, a bit of a more better perspective on some of those, the culture wars to where, uh, as I mentioned before, the general meme about this is, oh, look, you know what, read this book. It's going to tell you that men are trying to take over the lives of women. And when I read it, it was like, no, that's not really what's happening. It's a lot like any other dystopian novels. Um, and I think she did a great job of looking at human nature and I enjoyed the writing. Um, but there's not a whole lot that I have left over where I'm like, where I'm really thinking about a lot of stuff. I think a lot of movies or a lot of books afterwards when I read them, um, I I can't stop thinking or it makes me want to write about something or discuss something. Like uh, um, I'm reading um, Eric Neumann now, The Origins of Consciousness, and I can't go more than five pages without stopping and staring off in this space because my mind is just... Um, I think once I'm done with this book, it'll be like, oh, that's cool. I'm glad I read that and I enjoyed it, but that was it. I think she did a good job um, showing how miserable everyone was, like everyone. The wives were probably the most miserable creatures um, and the husbands, you know, even though they had their secret parties, just miserable. And doubly um, feeling trapped maybe by their own lie and all those imposed, self-imposed rules, but just the fact that they were completely lying to themselves about all of it. So it's that, that double trap I thought was, was captured very well. And another thing that I don't know why I noticed that, but the, the, what they chose, I think, as a tool to prevent communication between the women, you know, of course, they're, they're you know, they're uh, attire um, all together, you just kind of puritanical and all that. But the, the bonnets, not, it's not a sign of modesty. It's just, it's just to prevent your visibility, your communication. They were completely 
tunnel vision. I really, that, that kind of, um, I don't know, just made, made me, that was terrifying to, to think about not being able to see, not being able to, to know and read the facial cues of other people and just your surroundings. You're completely feeling unsafe everywhere. Um, it just reminds me of all the masking too. Like I, I feel like I can't see not only read, you know, uh, facial expressions, but I can't see. <laughs> it's just, just something that kind of made me think of. Yeah. I think you brought up situation. an interesting point there with, you know, not being able to see. And one thing I've learned recently is one of the main ways we communicate is with eyes, which separates us from the chimps. So if you ever see chimps, um, their eyes are totally black. You can't see the whites of their eyes. And one of the reasons we have the whites of our eyes visible is so other human beings can see what it is we're looking at. So there's a, a communicative um, process that goes on there. So when, I, when I, I remember when I heard that and I was re during reading this, I was thinking, oh, that's a big part of it. Because once they have this going on, they not only just facial expressions, but they can't even communicate with each other using their eyes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap it up then. Thanks everyone for joining. Um, and, uh, yeah, have a good rest of the rest of the weekend. And as a reminder, the next book is Thomas Sowell's, what is it? I have uh, black, red, next, and right. Liberals. Yes. Black, red, um, next, and white liberals. Thank you. <laughs> we were hoping you guys would do another gratitude episode before Thanksgiving. You know, I was thinking about that today. I didn't realize Thanksgiving was next week. And I thought maybe yes. I'll reach out to Carrie and ask her what she wants to do for it because I don't actually want to do a – yeah, I'm, I'm not – I was. I didn't realize – do we have a coffee break scheduled? We'll talk about it later. Uh, but, yeah, I've we should probably do something like that because I enjoyed it. On the gratitude thing since Amy happens to be here, Amy <laughs> gave me this Golden Girls cookbook. And – and I haven't have cooked anything for it yet, but I have been reading it and making notes. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> we have, we we have one on more super club. chat. Okay. Yeah, we have one more super chat before we go. I'll fight you naked said, it works the same way within Islam. The older women socially enforce the repression of younger women. Um, I think that works that works that way in every social group. Like that it works. That's not. I don't. That's not unique to this book. It, she did notice it, and I'm glad she called it out and and was explicit about it. But uh, I think she's right. That is that's often how it works. You have to get the a member of the group to be the the person controlling the rest of the people. So, um, all right. Look at all the white woke people who try to control the other white people, and the women. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, it's the same. Sorry. Yeah. I know you're allies. No, that's right. that's cool. Uh, all right. So have a good rest of the day, everyone, and we will see you for coffee break on Monday, which is tomorrow. And I guess that's it. Beverly, you can roll the credits. Bye. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. 
and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. To be honest, I am running out of patience with the following individuals. Here's a fun fact. Experts agree that inflation is good for you. As a reminder, self-defense can only be used as a last resort. You are legally required to first see if your death effectively deters your attacker. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.